0: Hi, it's Aaron. I'm your regular co host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning in and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out with a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening.
1: Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for speechtherapypd.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So, <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's First Bite. So, if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code First Bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And, Aaron, do you that want to? That
0: includes all the pod courses.
1: Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have we First Bite. Yeah, we do. It's Speech Uncensored. Um, And in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the Speech Link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like, fangirl crush. She's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Okay. All right. So promo
0: code is? First bite.
1: Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B Y T E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo.
0: there it is. Woohoo!
1: <laughs> Hi folks and welcome to First Bite fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC SLP, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode is going to stretch us all out of our comfort zone. Why, you ask? Well, because we are going to travel farther south than I ever did in grad school. No, I'm not talking about a tropical vacation. I mean, South Carolina still feels like the tropics and it's technically officially October. Today, we are going to travel south with respect to swallowing and cover all things fed and functional with the esophageal stage of swallowing. So once not too long ago, I was taught that once the bolus entered the upper esophageal sphincter, that was it. We as the SLPs were out and it was all GI from there. Cool, I thought. I know my terminating point. Alas, I was wrong. In my CF year, I witnessed during my hands-on modified barium swallow study training, a 78-year-old man come in with complaints of a globus sensation. He said, and I can see him, he goes, it sure does feel like it gets stuck right about here. Well, he was definitely not wrong. What I saw in Florida that day has scarred an image into my mind. Clinically, um, the speech pathologist, GI, and the radiologist in the room all agreed um, that it was a corkscrew esophagus. Because instead of a straight tube down, his esophagus looked like it's like own version of a personal roller coaster. That sucker had like twists and turns every which way. Um, I think it was like two feet long and there was there was lots of uh, residue along the esophagus because it was getting stuck. Uh, Legitimate globus, by the way, like legitimate. So several years later, I went to a CEU class at an ASHA Connect um, And the speaker said, we have misinterpreted feeding aversions or pocketing in pediatrics as truly an oral stage deficit. When in fact, a child holding a bolus or like pocketing or having issues upstream could actually be indicative of issues downstream. What? I sat in the back of the audience, you know, cause I like to sit in the back and like hiding corners because, you know, large groups make me nervous. And it just, I was scratching my head. I was like, no, that's, that's an oral stage deficit. She then turned around and backed her statements up by showing numerous instrumental swallow exams that sl- showed strictures, tertiary contractions, and more. Um, lots of information on laryngeal clefts as well. But bottom line, without instrumental examinations farther downstream that also include the esophagus, then we will not clinically know the true etiology of what we are seeing upstream During the oral stage, during a clinical bedside swallow evaluation. And y'all, we work in home health. I don't carry a fluoro um, suite around with me and the trunk of my car. Um, Again, it's bagless therapy. The only thing back there is karate clothes for thing one and two. So ha 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 ha. The multiple soapboxes here, so passionate soapboxes about bagless therapy somehow thrown into a passionate soapbox about the esophageal stage of dysphagia on that awkward turtle note, Erin. So, so how are we doing, balmy Virginia or uh, frigid New York?
0: <laughs> We're still in New York. Ah, so close. in New York. I don't think I've announced on the podcast though yet that I am moving to Virginia. Oh, so I I let the cat out of the bag because Bear crashed the party and I got excited. That's okay. We're, (laughs) we're, we are no longer a South Carolina girl. I know. And South Carolina is worse for it. Okay. I'm not going to cry. We're fine. (laughs) But it's very exciting. You're going to go to my home state. Mm -hmm. The Commonwealth.
1: Technically, it's a Commonwealth. It's not a state. Virginia's a little special like that. Just saying. Yes. Well. I'm I am thrilled and excited and I know that where you are headed is thrilled to have you. So um watch out, Virginia. Here comes our Aaron. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> okay, so let's get started before Bear walks back in because working mom props. Mm-hmm. So Miss Aaron, what is the role of the esophagus in swallowing?
0: Well, also, this is very relevant because Uh where I'm going, um, we had a talk recently about radiologists that would not do an esophageal sweep just because they didn't want to or didn't think it was relevant.
1: Guys, she's talking about during a modified barium swallow study.
0: Yes, I'm sorry. Um, So um, my manager had to speak with some of them about the importance and present research and present where our role is in looking at the esophagus. Um, So this is very relevant information. And it's one of those things where you get a new radiologist and you usually have to re-educate on the importance and the role that we play. Because there will be some that will say they don't even want to do a small study because that's not relevant to them either. So. And folks that's driven by billing. Mm-hmm. most radiologists do not it's want a whole to other they can bill twice if they were to have a whole other um
1: esophagram scan mm-hmm. so they they like having because you know unfortunately we are driven by financials and a modified barium swallow study is one cpt code and an esophagram scan is a different cpt code and sometimes it can be lumped in with an upper gi but if they bill it separate It's more money for the radiology department. Mm -hmm. There's the negative
0: ugly squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So going into the esophageal stage, the esophagus is not just a tube that your food goes down, but in layman's terms, it's the tube that your food goes down. Um, And the big thing with the esophagus is our UES, our upper esophageal sphincter, and our LES, our lower esophageal sphincter. And so the UES, for that to open, it. and my supervisor in my children's hospital placement explained it so well. It's basically just a bunch of – it's like a pulley system, essentially. Your whole swallow is like a pulley system. And it made more sense to me that way because – For those of you that have done the MBS IMP, um, the MBS impairment scale, it has 17 different aspects that you rate a swallow on. And it was so difficult for me to grasp the fact that a normal, healthy swallow was impaired in some areas. But with it being a pulley system, it makes you understand that when one area is somewhat impaired, another area... Um, makes up for it to create that pulley system. So once you go through the pharyngeal stage, you reach the esophageal stage, and your cricopharyngeus muscle, along with your base of tongue, and the, your pharyngeal stage propels the UES open. You, the bolus then enters the esophagus, and through the peristaltic waves. It's and it's an autonomic nervous system um, mm role to pull the bolus down, and then the LES. um, What word am I looking for? Um, It's passive. Yes, it's passive. So it just kind of relaxes. That's the word, and to allow the food out of the esophagus. And there are a lot of things that can affect the LES and the UES that is kind of why we're here today too to explain that but it is very mm-hmm. passive but it everything has to kind of work together and it's a it's air pressure a lot of times that that opens up the UES and the LES also so that's mm-hmm. very important
1: um when i was in um uh grad school The the analogy that they used, I don't remember the details, but it was like somehow they correlated it to like a soda can and like Mm -hmm. popping the top of a soda can, changing the pressures. And they were like, it's very akin to the Bernoulli effect, but instead of moving air, you're moving the bolus. And Mm -hmm. I was like, and so now that I'm old it's up there with, like, remembering the um mnemonic for cranial nerves, except I just remember, remember it's a soda
0: can. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Dr. Odie, I don't remember more than that. <laughs> but it's, like, it's one wave of, like, relaxation, and then there's mm-hmm. a wave of contraction that, like, propels it down. Okay, so that's in a neurotypical healthy kid. Yeah.
1: And – and even in our neurotypical, quote-unquote, healthy children, the esophagus does relax, especially in a state of sleep. So um, mm-hmm. the when, when a baby lays down and they're more likely to have like GER, gastroesophageal reflux, not disease, but just normal, regular amount of reflux, that happens um, around month three or four. That's when the doctors term them happy spitters. So- from a physiologic perspective what happens is the um enteric nerve system of your GI tract the um the lining is the nerves are not fully developed until you are full term so 40 weeks plus 3 to 4 months so during those final 3 to 4 months the way i explain it um to folks is that Anybody out there listening, have you ever built a house? Okay? Like we still have my kitchen redo going on thank you faulty dishwasher, right? So, they give you the final date. Your house is going to be completed on October 31st, right? Well, let me tell you what. That date is wrong. Most likely, your house and or your kitchen will be hopefully done by Thanksgiving, okay? But the final 2 weeks before it's done, That remodel, that redo is total, complete chaos, okay? Things are going everywhere. That's what happens with the enteric nerve system um, during month three and four for a a typically developing full-term baby, okay? The nerve endings are just working out their like last-minute kinks before it's fully developed, which is why it's common for even our full-term healthy neurotypical babies to have more spit-up during those months. Okay. Um, That's where we also, in my humble opinion, get a lot of the um, suggestions of, oh, you need to feed them more. You just need to put a little bit of food in there at month four. No, don't feed the babies pureed food or anything Mm -hmm. other than breast milk or formula until month six, according to the Academy of Pediatrics. Okay. But um, that's what you're seeing. So the esophagus, yes, we're born with one, hopefully fully intact, but they need time before it's done. Okay. Does that translate out of Michelle land mm-hmm. very well? Somebody was very excited this morning and they woke up at 4.45 this morning. So a certain four-year-old has had mommy up for a very long time. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. Okay. All right, I really want to get to the etiologies, but we have to do our due justice. Okay. So, talk to me about the role of the instrumental swallow exam, and I know everybody is already preliminarily frustrated. Um. And um, uh it's as it pertains to the esophagus.
0: I mean, the way that I like the way that I'll explain to radiology too is like we're just looking for clearance. Like we want, and I mean. If you notice something anatomically going on, obviously, then you will note that and lead, suggest further um, instrumentals, further diagnostics to determine that that's on our job. If you notice something, obviously, you're going to note it. But what we're looking for is the clearance of the bolus, making sure there's, you know, you can kind of see if there's immediate reflux or if there's like it comes back up through the esophagus. We want to see that peristalsis work its way all the way down through the LES. And that's why it's kind of I think that's why the word esophageal sweep is used cuz you're just kind of trying to last step follow the bolus all the way down because we esophagus is now in our scope of practice. So that is important for us to follow the swallow all the way down because How are we supposed to know what happens after that if we don't at least look at it? It's not like we're trying to diagnose, uh, you know, different etiologies anatomically of the esophagus. We're just trying to know just as if we notice other symptoms, you know, such as um, eczema, we can make referral to allergy. We would then make the referral for further diagnostics, but we're not going to know to make the referral if we don't sweep the esophagus.
1: Okay, so here's your resources to justify it. Number one, go check out ASHA's practice portal. ASHA even has, uh, they, they have all of the information that you need as to why the esophageal stage should be included. Um, I know I'm just like a super big, huge, nerdy fan, but Tom Francesney has some really good work out on the esophageal stage of dysphagia. Um, uh, the um, BCSS licensure um Website. They have ongoing additional CEUs, and um, I feel like the last time I was on their website, they had something on the esophageal stage as well. So listen to it from the okay. mouths of the experts. Salud. Bless Thank you, woman. You. Um, okay. All right. So here's here's an interesting one. If you get on the American Academy of Radiology, the best practice guidelines for completing a modified barium swallow study actually, the American Academy of Radiology, they actually have a best practice statement um, that says we are to include the esophagus in the modified barium swallow studies. Okay. So it's written into their practice parameters Mm -hmm. that they should do it. However,
0: then it's there's the actual,
1: uh-huh, because of money and that's what it boils down to. It's not, um, I'm not passing judgment here. Okay. Let me rephrase that. I'm trying really hard not to pass judgment here,
0: but that's where we are. So. And it's more time. There are, I mean, not that much yeah. more time, but like, I remember when I was in my placement at the hospital, like, you would get there 15 minutes early, set up all the barium, set up all the, you know, all the foods, get the child set, get the parent set, call them in, they're in for five minutes, you hurry it up as fast as you can, and then they peace out.
1: Aside from just doing the modified barium swallow studies, there's other tests that we can request and have run to actually look at the esophageal stage. Um, A lot of them do have to do with manometry and um, GERD test. Um, so one of them is the Bravo pH test. Boston Children's Hospital has a really good uh, explanation on what the Bravo pH test does. Um, uh, they just put a recording device in a Bravo capsule um, in the esophagus, and it measures how much um, acid is present. Um, actually, if you guys just get on Boston Children's Hospital It's www.childrenshospital.org backslash conditions hyphen treatments, and it actually goes through and you can look up all of the different ones. Esophageal manometry, uh, it's a procedure where a small flexible tube is placed in the nose and passed into the esophagus, and it can determine how well your child's esophagus is working by measuring the pressure and coordination of the esophageal muscles, And I think that's lovely because a lot of our kiddos that have, um, that take really, really tiny bites and sips, Mm -hmm. we assume it's an oral stage deficit. Have we ever given consideration that they may, and they most likely don't have the capabilities of explaining it. They may not feel like they have the strength to propel the bolus down. Just like Aaron said earlier, the parrot.
0: Hey, say that word again. I can't say. Can I make my mouth. Open? It's a tongue. It's a tongue twister.
1: Yes, and you can articulate. I still call crowns crowns. Sorry, the things you that you crown, call them.
0: Crayons. You call them? Yeah, crayons. no, they're
1: crowns. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the
1: one you wear on your head and the one you color with. Where I'm from, they're pronounced exactly
0: the same way. Well, so you also I- pronounce pen and pin the same way. Yeah, they're pins. I don't know yes. the difference. I don't know when you say them what you're asking for.
1: I, this is why goose struggles with the vowels, the, the short vowels. <laughs> oh,
0: my poor children. Oh my goodness.
1: Okay. Um, esophageal impedance. Esophageal impedance is a diagnostic test that measures the amount and type of gastroesophageal reflux in the esophagus. And um, it, it, it's just another wonderful, is it GERD? Is it not GERD? Is it the volume of GERD? Are there other things going on? So there are other options to test how well the esophagus is working aside from just the modified barium swallow study. Um, There was, I'm trying to remember the name of the class last ASHA. It was the masters c- short class. It was one of the short courses, and um, they had they had Susan Langmore, the founder of mm-hmm. Feeds and with a lady from it was Heather Bonhilla from MUSC. Give me a second, and a lovely lady from University of it was it was a school in Texas, and they were comparing. Taylor Baylor.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. Baylor. Yeah, they're big in fees.
1: Yep. yep, yep, yep. And they were comparing contrasting different swallow assessments and MUSC was really talking about manometry in general. And they have a
0: they have a course coming up at MUSC on manometry? Mhm. I forget when it is exactly. It's either I think it's the beginning of next year. I want okay. to say It's on, if you're on SIG13, they've posted about it in like the discussion group. Um, Perfect. Yeah, but they, they have a course there.
1: Awesome. Okay. What they're finding with the manometry, if they do manometry in conjunction with the modified barium swallow studies, what we're finding on a typical barium swallow study, we may think... Um, that the residue is due to one etiology, when in fact, when they do the manometry, it's actually like base of tongue retraction and mm-hmm. lovely, totally different etiologies. And that's going to directly change your plan of care.
0: Because mm-hmm. it's all then, about the air pressure to propel mm-hmm. the bolus. They That was what it was. They said that one of the clips that they showed, they thought it was
1: due to insufficient UES opening. And it um like as in like the child would need surgery for their UES because there was something wrong. And it was actually base of time retraction. And I was like, oh my stars, this is this is a game changer. Mm-hmm. And monometry was definitely not anything that was around when I was in grad school.
0: Well, that's why it is so important because like you the system works together so well that when there's a breakdown. You can't always equate it to, especially like if you think about it in the esophagus, that's the last stage. If there's breakdowns elsewhere in the system, that's going to automatically affect the esophagus. I mean, sometimes that doesn't mean it's a deficit of the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And vice versa. Yeah. Yes.
1: So – Big picture takeaway here, y'all make sure we're actually going that far down when we're looking at our tiny humans. Please don't just stop and say, oh, it's an oral stage deficit because it's, it's probably something else. I never code oral stage. I always code oropharyngeal and I'm waiting for there to be an ICD-10 code that says oropharyngeal esophageal um, because I feel like in 10 years, we're going to realize it's, it's a combination of all of them.
0: Mm -hmm. I also feel like
1: we like an ice 20. (laughs) What?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like we always assume that was a bad use of words. I feel like there's oftentimes when we assume that it's oral because we know we can, you know, you know, you can work on the oral phase. So you feel more in control and like there's something you can do if it is oral, whereas that's not always the case. And when it's esophageal, you know, there's not a ton we can do, but just determining that and referring can then help them better develop their other skills. Okay,
1: so let me give y'all a real life example um, that is incredibly frustrating to me. Um, I was referred a little one that had down syndrome. Um, this has been, I treated her, I've owned heartwood for three years, three years, um, September. And so I treated her about three and a half years ago and I got the little one. She'd had another, she was, um, two and change. She'd had another speech pathologist for about a year and they'd been working on the, um, blowing protocol, for a, uh, diagnosis of aspiration on thin liquids. So the other therapist had been working on blowing a hierarchy of whistles on the grounds that it was going to help strengthen and tone.
0: I didn't even Her know role. that there was a blowing protocol, dude,
1: the blowing protocol <laughs> was all the rage. This <laughs> was, this is how old I am. This was a precursor to chewy tubes, dude. Um, and so like the whole concept was that you were going to Although improve- if you
0: blow, you're you're exerting air outward. And when you yeah. swallow, you're propelling the bolus inward.
1: Yes. And I mean, it's among not- other
0: things. But still <laughs> that,
1: And it's not even like it's blowing with like the evidence of the expiratory muscle strength trainers. It's literally blowing through straws of different diameters across. And I was like, was she working on labial seal? Because the kids got a great labial seal after blowing into that many blow toys, whistles and all the things. But the catch was she had, she had aspiration of thin liquids. I was like, this is not going to fix a pharyngeal stage issue. Like what's really going on. Right. Yeah. So I convinced the family through the interpreter to get her down to, um, MUSC for some additional diagnostics because I had gone to this lecture that I talked about. Okay. And she presented in her lecture a thing on laryngeal clefts and correlation to um, uh, mm-hmm. um, clefts of the uh, esophagus clefts and and like esophageal atresias and esophageal echolasias and stuff like that. And dang, if that kid didn't have a, uh, it was a laryngeal cleft and they went in and they did surgery. They closed the cleft. Guess who no longer aspirated um, uh, thin liquids anymore. And I saw her for a little bit more for language, so forth and whatnot, moving on. But
0: also, like you told me. If a kid's just aspirating thin liquids, that's a red flag for something
1: else, Mm -hmm. a laryngeal cleft or something structural. We don't just aspirate thin liquids without there being a structural etiology. Like there's, there's something going on. So absolutely. Please follow up. Dagna. interprofessional practice. (laughs) Oh, my stars. That's a, we, how many episodes have we done on that? We need more. We need more. I know. Okay. So, so that gets us to different etiologies that could be going on with the esophageal stage of the swallow. And there are some that are more prevalent than others. And then there's some that are outliers that need more research, but y'all, there's so many different things. Okay. Erin, do you want to start there or do you want me to go What what you think? You, lady?
0: you, you go ahead. Okay. Cause I'm like literally, I know you up. are.
1: Okay. All right. So, um, here's one that I have seen a couple of times and, um, it's an outlier and I know that, but it's an important part of my evidence-based triangle. Esophageal thrush. Okay. So it's a yeast infection of the esophagus. All right. So how did this happen? I had a kiddo that was predominantly tube fed And I would say at the time that she was diagnosed, she had about 75% of her calories were taken in through her tube through a set formula that never changed, okay? We are supposed to be eating a variety of foods and a lot of fermented foods because we need to change and challenge our, our microbiome of our GI tract, right? If you're on the same formula, all the time, then guess what, folks, you don't get that variety. So something happened and the little girl got a yeast infection and kids are gross, dude. They stick their hands where they're not supposed to be. And then they stick them in their mouth or other holes in their body. Why Mm -hmm. do you think we have the pink eye? Right. Um, so (laughs) we taught our boys, you don't touch your butt and then touch your eye. This is how we get the pink eye. And it's become like, oh my God, children are so gross. So that's what this little girl did. And she got an oral yeast infection. And we thought that they treated the oral yeast infection. We thought that they treated the vaginal yeast infection. Mom, it was an RN, so she was on it. But what I noticed was about a week later, and this was the sign or symptom, she started pocketing everything down to her saliva to the point that she would have so much saliva in her mouth, she would just lean over on the floor and let it all plop out. Well, mom expressed concern that, um, this was a new behavior. She was worried about a concomitant diagnosis of, um, autism spectrum disorders. When in fact, the little girl's original etiology was microcephaly with, um, esophageal atresia, which is where your esophagus did not connect to the stomach. And, um, she had also ended up having tracheoesophageal fistulas and we'll go into all those terms shortly. But I was like, this is, this is not, Typical for her, I said, "Can we please call her GI specialist? Can we request a scope because I think the thrush has gone farther down." Um, and and mom, who was a GIRN, was like on board with this, y'all. Her esophagus looked like cottage cheese when they put the scope in. She immediately started a rush of, um, heavy duty. They did all sorts of meds and then like, um, uh, a swish and spit that she actually had to swallow, um, in order to get it down to actually coat her esophagus. And I was like, that's an outlier of one. That's a subject sample of one. I'm never going to see it again. I saw it again a year later, um, uh, when, uh, Aaron and I were working together And it was a little boy who had EOE and he had, he was only on Ella care junior, uh, vanilla. That was the only formula he could take. He got a, um, little boys can also get yeast infection on their tallywhackers and their businesses. And that's what happened. And children are gross. And he did the exact same thing. He started pocketing his saliva. we same protocol, got a scope in there and another round of esophageal thrush. Y'all, that's an outlier. But for your kids that are chronically tube fed, this is something, or that have like severe PO intake, this is something that I feel very strongly that we need to be getting diagnostics on. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Well, and also All just right. think oh. about if there's a change, especially if there's a change in behavior, mm-hmm. that's kids don't just uh, i am a firm believer that kids don't just do things to do them like there's a reason why a child is doing something especially if it's a change that mom has noticed or dad has noticed or caretaker has noticed um like that's important to not just brush over something like that
1: Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 Speech Therapy PD.com Conference at Sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a, a three hour course, a two hour course, a one hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult pod course podcast that just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD Conference at sea, um, which is July tenth through seventeenth of twenty twenty, and I cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're gonna see real life bears and like hopefully we'll get to see northern lights. So whoop whoop, see you at sea, bye. So the new big bad one that we're all learning about is the eosinophilic esophagitis, um. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so you said, this is EOE and we've touched base on it in other, um, episodes. This is where the cell migrates from the lower GI tract to the stomach. We have really bad acid reflux. The cell plucks itself right in the esophageal lining. It grows rapid fire. And then it does this terrible, um, it has, it basically recodes your body and reprograms your body that the foods that you weren't allergic to before you're now allergic to. That's a very, very oversimplification of
0: what happens, mm-hmm. but there it is.
1: But do and, you have a
0: favor and look it up what it looks like? Because yes, I feel like you'll realize how painful it probably is.
1: Yep. And, and the, in the um co- most common signs and symptoms Of children that have EOE is pocketing, limited intake, feeding aversions, and they're also known for having esophageal impactions because what happens with the EOE is they actually build up strictures. Like the cell makes it look like if you're looking in the esophagus, it makes it look like um, tracheal rings, Mm -hmm. except it's in the esophagus, right? And those, those build up and they um, can actually cause a food impaction in there. So when you do a modified barium swallow study, if it looks like there's a series of, um, what are those, what are those things called? Hourglasses. I was trying to think of the game that we play, um, uh, where you act out, what is it? Charades. Charades. Yes. How many times have we played charades? And, um, but that, That's a fun game. Y'all, if you haven't played charades with your children, please play charades with your kids. Yes, for the six-year-old
0: that thinks that if you don't guess it, he wins. So he just (laughs) says one thing and then looks at you like, you lost, sorry.
1: (laughs) For the entire minute that the hourglass timer is. Mm
0: -hmm. He's like, oh, I won. (laughs) Not how it works, but Okay.
1: Oh my God. Oh, now you know how we wild out on Friday night and pack thoughts on household charades with the tiny units. Oh my God, we have fun. Okay. So, but it, that's what it looks like. The esophagus will actually look like a series of hourglasses. It's just the greatest and hor- most horrifying thing ever because as soon as you see that on a swallow study, you're like, all right, cool. Now we got to get some biopsies. Okay. Because You can be the greatest feeding therapist in the world. You can't make a kid not allergic to a food. No. Right? It's just not going to happen. That's why we have to work collaboratively with our allergists, with our
0: GI. And if you think it's just like them packing the food and you try and work on that, then you're pushing them to eat food when they're in pain and that's just going to make it 20 times worse.
1: And we don't know what they're allergic to. The children that have EOE, almost all of them have a horrible dairy allergy, right? But we've had kids that have had pea protein allergy. If you're allergic to dairy and you eliminate dairy, a lot of times they substitute pea powder protein. Well, then kids are often allergic to that. Um, Green beans, um, lamb's meat. Well, I don't eat meat, but also we don't really live in an area where there's a lot of lamb's meat. But like, I mean... America's pretty big. Other people are listening. Maybe y'all eat more lamb's meat than I do, but that's a very odd allergy to me,
0: right? Hi. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but maybe yeah, we okay. used to I mean I was going to say maybe we used to eat more lamb, but maybe we've never eaten that much lamb. I don't know. I feel
1: like I feel like our friends that have Greek heritage probably eat Yeah, more
0: and they're lamb. probably not they probably are less likely to have a lamb allergy.
1: Interesting. Well, you know with the um, peanut allergy, now they're saying to actually introduce peanut earlier, and they think us putting the rule in, of uh, waiting to introduce peanut butter at two, has actually contributed to the rise in peanut allergies. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to do an episode on that. That would be fun.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: We'll add that to we'll add that to the to do list for 2020. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so eosinophilic esophagitis is another condition of the esophagus that will present with an oral stage aversion. Okay, so we touched on it with one of the case examples that I used, but um, um, esophageal atresia. Uh, yes, this is a congenital disorder, and there's four stages. Erin, I don't. Is it level one that's the worst? I can't remember this one.
0: Um, it's level one. I don't one. remember.
1: All right. Hold on. I'm pulling it up. CDC. It's congenital. I f- I always get in level one and level four backwards. I never know which one is the worst case. Um, That's that's embarrassing. But I mean,
0: I, I mean, am- I think it depends like in a stroke. The higher mm-hmm. level like- is going to be worse, but I don't think that's yes. always the case.
1: Yes. Okay. Um, Four types, type A, B, C, D. Um, So level one, level four. All right. Mm -hmm. So type A is upper and lower parts of the esophagus do not connect and have closed ends. Type B is very rare. It's the type where the upper part of the esophagus is attached to the trachea, but the lower part of the esophagus has a closed end. Type C is the most common. In this type, the upper part of the esophagus has a closed end, and the lower part of the esophagus is attached to the trachea. And type D is the rarest and most severe. In this type, the upper and lower parts of the esophagus are not connected to each other, but each is connected separately to the trachea. Okay, so how exactly are we going to swallow when um, it, you're not anatomically hardwired to do that, right? Um, this is congenital. Um, these are the babies that prior to having modern technology and surgery, they weren't going to make it, right? And even after you are rewired, you can still have um, damage to the enteric nerve system, which will result in difficulty with the wave, the perist- Say, <laughs> help. Aaron, help! The peristaltic wave. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that?
0: Yeah, peristaltic wave.
1: Okay, I will. That's my homework assignment for the week: learn how to use the correct lingo, Michelle. Adult better,
0: <laughs> but.
1: Yes. Okay. So uh, there's your esophageal atresia. Okay. Now with esophageal atresia, you are more likely to have, and wait for it, a tracheoesophageal fistula, which is a hole between the trachea and the esophagus. And those Mm -hmm. look amazing on um uh, fluoro space. Yeah, just, have you like, ever seen that or,
0: i've seen videos of it i've never seen one in person but like it literally I just know. like shoots through
1: yeah so like on fluoro they swallow down the right tube and then it's like it looks like a water gun mm-hmm. like and then they have like a wet cough because they're bringing it up but How do we know that if we don't have the instrumental swallow exam done by best practice that includes going down to the esophagus?
0: Yeah. Well, and this is what, like, I know that there are so many instances when, like, it's hard to get them to a swallow study or, you know, they're in the middle of, like, I understand being in home health, like, it took me a few months to get certain patients to swallow studies because – of transportation or they have four other kids or everything like that. But what you need to understand is that you can be causing more damage by treating something that is not actually the deficit. And I know that we just want to help and give any sort of resources that we can, but I think it's important to just acknowledge the fact that, you know, you can be causing harm if you don't really have all of the details and I know that's hard in some instances and you really have to just work with what you believe is going on but be aware of that because you could be thinking you could be thinking you're moving forward in progress and then you're actually pushing further back and then when you have the actual diagnosis have to work from even further behind than you were before but I mean I know that's hard but just to be aware of that that that's a possibility.
1: That's where, if we're forcing oral trials in a kid, then you're creating another negative sensory experience. Mm-hmm. So, feeding therapy should always be positive to neutral at best. And once you exit neutrality, bad things happen. Yeah. And, um, um, I got a case that I have worked with this baby for 2 years and we have a new nurse and the new nurse has come on and y'all um I have lost sleep. Um I have um I have I think rubbed a raw spot in my head because I am just so frustrated. Um and I know that she means well. She's coming in from a different setting that was very fast paced. You make one request, the doctor writes the script and assessments get done right in the world of home health. It can take me three months to convince a physician to make a referral for a diagnostic test. And then that's just the referral that doesn't even include getting the kid to the facility and getting on the actual scheduled appointment. Right. Um, And, and that's where I'm at. Like we've got the most complex PMH past medical history. And, um, it's very frustrating to want to explain that there's a reason I haven't referred out for an aggressive feeding clinic in a separate state because from a, um, Uh, A baseline. We don't have a set baseline due to changes in seizure medication, due to changes in um, uh, febrile seizures, due to
0: uh,
1: a a list of things. And I'm not unconvinced that we don't have some esophageal or um, overall GI motility issues. And I don't think a feeding clinic is the appropriate direction to go when we are. PO baseline refusals due to all of that. And we have yet to do a root cause analysis downstream. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Um, um, I'm just gonna, um, um, canoodle a little bit more and, uh, I I might start yoga again. (laughs) Oh, I don't think that's going to help Aaron. Okay, all right. So we've covered oh the biggie GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Good God Almighty, do you want to eat if your stomach is upset all the time and you're constantly spitting up? No. And then the treatment for GERD is unpleasant, and there's all these counter indications for medications.
0: Yeah, the, yeah. can cause um, then constipation. Mm-hmm.
1: There was there was a new one that came through on the um, feeding. Uh oh my gosh, who did it? Was it esophagan? They put out the research just recently on how the GERD medicine is correlated to um less bone density. Hmm. I think it came through esophagan. Um E I I can't spell esophagan. E S-P-H um A-G-N or G-A-N. And they just said that um, the most common medications like Zantac, like Zantac's been pulled from the market um, because of the results of their most recent findings. Mm -hmm. And okay, so the traditional and I say traditional, like the older methodology to treat GERD was to do um, a Nissen fund duplication, Okay, which is where you take the top of the stomach and you wrap it around and you recreate the lower esophageal sphincter. I have seen children. I had one little kiddo that was in a um a really bad situation. Um, in general, like it ended up being a DSS referral. So I I don't have a happy, warm, fuzzy story for this, but the child had um uh I think it was a grade four bleed at birth, was a micropremi. So we had a really complex etiology, we were already tube fed, and we kept refluxing. So because of this kid's complex his past, they went and did a Nissen from duplication. Um, Nissen was done, um, inpatient on a Wednesday overnighted couple days. I came in the following Monday, he'd been discharged over the weekend and the, uh, the nurse was there and she goes, yeah, he's still spinning up. And I'm like, that's odd. He just had the surgery. And no, I came in on a Tuesday cause the nurse had been there all day Monday. And I was like, that's odd. So, you know, we were doing like, um, trials trying to like reestablish PO. And so we gave him the milk and, um, he took down, I want to say like maybe only an ounce. And within 10 minutes I was wearing the ounce and I'm like, something's not right. So I called the pediatrician and cause the nurse also said, yeah, the, the diaper we're not as getting as many wet diapers. And there was a whole host of concerns. Long story short, when they went in And they brought the baby in. The baby had lost weight since like the Wednesday before. And the child had developed a stricture above the Nissen. Nothing was passing through that stricture. So we went in to fix something, but then had a surgical complication and Mm -hmm. then had an esophageal stricture. So yeah, they may not have a congenital esophageal deficit, but complications from surgery, happen. And I know that these are all outliers and I'm throwing a lot out there, but th- all of those have shaped and changed me as a clinician and are some of the reasons why I'm so much more of a vocal advocate because y'all, the world is weird and there's patterns. And if you see it once, you're more mm-hmm. likely to see it happen again.
0: Well, and especially with you know our kids that are in the NICU that have all these tubes in and go through yeah. surgeries and much more medical treatment. Like then there are more risks for complications and, and I mean, G-tube and G- preparation
1: and, from the, yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've, I've seen a G-tube surgery on adults, but it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's quick, but, and I mean, I remember I had a kid who I didn't do the eval, um, and was just treating for language. And then like six months in had conversations with family about concerns for, you know, his PO intake and just, he was very, very picky. Honestly, you know, Would eat one food for a while and then not really like it. Pretty much just snacked, like consistently snacking on like goldfish, gummies, all that kind of stuff. Didn't really like to sit for a whole meal. And it wasn't until like we, you know, I kept talking to them, trying to figure out what was going on, get the history. And it wasn't until like the week before I left that mom talked to me about the fact that he spit up almost all of his meals at a little bit for like the first year of his life. Oh my gosh. And she was like, yeah. And the pediatrician just said he was a happy spitter. And I just kind of looked at her and I didn't want to be too blunt about it because it didn't want to upset her. But I was like, mm, I don't really believe in happy spitters for a whole year of their life.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining you like the rate at which your brain flies trying to like physically make your face, not show the total fear and concern. Oh, that That's, you had. My,
0: that's a, like, I tend to do that where I'll make it like they'll say something. And usually it's like after a doctor's appointment or something, and they'll tell me something that was said and I give this look and then I'm like, Oh crap. Now I have to say why I made the look on my face because I don't hide things very well. But it made me, I felt so horrible because I was like, I had no idea because I wasn't really seeing this kid for feeding at first. And like, it took so long to get that history. And I'm like, of course he doesn't want to eat. He threw up for a whole year of his life and food has never been that pleasant for him. And he probably was throwing up because of GERD or something to that extent. But like, we didn't really know. So I tried to kind of set up my discharge and plan from there to help them, you know, with a new feeding therapist in what they needed to diagnostic wise. But I was, but at that, that kid at that point, you know, most people would just say he was a picky eater or it was sensory, but it was likely because of everything that he went through as a child, Mm -hmm. because that wasn't dealt with. And I mean, And he
1: hit all the red flags for EOE.
0: Oh yeah. And he, I mean, it's it's one of those things where like he could have been put on a different formula or there were so many ways to kind of combat that but the pediatrician was just like, "Oh, he's just a happy spit." Who is happy? I when I am sick, I do everything I can not to throw up because it is horrible. Who wants to throw I mean granted they're just throwing up formula and like I some, you know, for lack, you know, there's the burger you ate the day before or whatever, but still <laughs> happy and spitting up do not equal one another
1: no they do not oh my okay all right so talking of the spitting up esophageal um oh my gosh what is the word i'm looking for esophageal um mm mm-hmm. mhm where the you, the les does not open up y'all that results in impactions and in lots of spitting up So, because there's nowhere for the food to go. So it comes back up. So these children, um, I had one kid that was diagnosed with, um, what they thought was rumination. So the physician, um, said it was rumination. It wasn't rumination. Um, it was, um, and they, they diagnosed rumination without, um, uh, any like instrumental exams. It was esophageal achalasia. And I'm hoping I'm saying that word correctly, which is simply where the UES does not open all the way. Um, I'm sorry. I said UES. I meant the um, LES. But that's, there it is. Okay. All right. Hold on. Let me check my time because I know that we are going to have questions. Okay. So we covered esophageal atresia. We covered the fact that happy sweaters aren't really happy. They probably have acid reflux and hit the red flags for dairy, soy, or EOE. We covered EOE, esophageal echolasia, and echolasia is, I found it, A-C-H-A-L-A-S-I-A. So when in doubt, just put an A in there. Um, uh, what, what else was there on Michelle land brain that we need to cover in the esophagus? Um, there was one research article. There was one research article years ago, um, on children that had, um, uh, autism spectrum disorders. They were nonverbal with really, really aggressive, um, feeding tendencies. And, uh, this, uh, researcher, studied four boys that were known to be the most violent feeding aversions at like this one clinic. And um, when they went and did the instrumental swallow exams, all four of the boys had esophageal echolasia with food impactions. Interesting. They're Ellie. yeah, I know. And and her conclusion in the research article, I'm going to pull this research article up. It was absolutely fascinating. Her conclusion at the end of the research article was that this has a subject sample of four, which is insufficient to do like anything with other than say, we need to research this more. But all I could think of was, yeah, so Why? There's so much about our little ones that have autism spectrum disorders. That is an unknown variable. We have got to, when we see a behavior, y'all, we've, we've got to do the digging to figure out the why, um, hang on one second. My PowerPoint is loading and then I can give y'all the, um, the actual research article. Is there anything, any other one, um, biopsies of the esophagus to rule out EOE and celiac blood work to rule out celiac. Celiac is an autoimmune. Um, I'm trying esophagitis due to GERD. Mm-hmm. What else? Am I, what else are we forgetting woman again? four forty-five this morning. Cause a certain tiny human sleep apnea is back. Thank you. Narrowed nasal turbinates.
0: Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, we learn about so many, I feel like with adults, you learn about like webbing, you know, all this different stuff that, um, you don't really see in Pete's that much. Mm Hmm.
1: That's true. Okay. So some of our favorite, um, support groups for esophageal stages, um, uh, or, or just a place to fact find. Again, check out Feeding Matters. Also, check out um, uh, feedingtubeawareness.org because some of those issues will result in a child needing a feeding tube because life happens, right? So, with that, um, feedingtubeawareness.org does a really good job of educating um, folks on how to care for a tube. Uh, different signs and symptoms of illnesses with the tube, and uh, all all of those fun facts. It is buy et al. 2010. It was Bui et al. in 2010, B-U-I-E, and that was the article for esophageal echolasia. So Google buy et al. 2010, and it should pop right up. And then there was Bui et al., and there was also Batelli et al., and those are the ones that talk about esophageal echolasia. Okay. All right. So then let's switch to questions now that we have, we have found the articles and then I'll make sure that I screenshot the, um, cover page of the article. And then folks will get that on the, um, uh, we'll get that on the Instagram, the first bite Instagram and the yeah. first bite Facebook page. Yeah. That sounds good. Perfect. All right. Well then I'll do the screenshot. Okay. All right. And then before I forget, cause we've covered all the possible things I think we can on the esophagus, somebody out there will know another one message us we'll share it. Um, but next Tuesday y'all, we have like a speech pathology goddess on, um, Sherry Fraker with food chaining is going to be on and, um, who's the author of food chaining. And I absolutely cannot wait Because she's wonderful. So she's going to be on talking about the difference between pre-chaining and food chaining. So whoop, whoop. Yay. So uh, that's it. All right, woman, are you good? Did we cover all the things? I think so. Cool. All right, let's switch over to questions. Hold on one second. I just have to give a shout out and a thank you and a call to action. I'm really good at doing call to actions. There's a lot of soapboxes out there in the world. But I just have to say that there aren't many people more passionate about pediatric feeding disorders and evidence-based treatment than all of y'all, you amazing First Bite listeners. So if you're interested in uniting forces with nerdy, passionate, like-minded individuals to help improve the system of care for pediatric feeding disorders, then consider joining Feeding Matters Community Ambassador Program, and we can help spread awareness and resources about pediatric feeding disorders. Y'all, this is me acting in that role right now, me sharing all of their resources, me doing all of these PSAs. That's me Volunteering the time and the weird gobbledygook mouth that I was blessed and gifted with. That's volunteerism. For some people, being a community ambassador is taking their published pamphlets and they will send you that in a lovely little box and it shows up on your front doorstep or your back door. That way, dog and chewy don't eat it. And you can go to the pediatrician's office and educate pediatricians. About pediatric feeding disorders. It could be simply doing an in-service to your staff. There's so many different opportunities that you can share your talented selves and your skills and your time by acting as a community ambassador. Please, from the bottom of my heart, I am asking for you to join us in this crazy walk of life and be a community ambassador. It's rewarding, it's joyful, and it's fun. Um, so there it is. Tiny Soapbox, call to action. Let's change the world. I'm pretty sure Dr. K Toomey said we could do this on a grassroots effort in an episode or two a while back. So join feeding matters, be a community ambassador. And to learn more, visit bit.ly back slash FM community ambassadors. And seriously, thank you. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through SpeechTherapyPD.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode.